This is Adam Cantor, chair of the AANS-CNS Joint Section of the Spine and Peripheral Nerves. I am excited and honored to invite everyone listening to the Nerve Surgery Podcast to join us at the new Modern 2023 Spine Summit, where we will celebrate our theme, Excellence Requires Change, with our MVPs, Mastery, Vision, and Purpose. And it's going to be in beautiful Miami Beach, Florida, March 16th to the 19th of 2023. It is going to be at the historic Fountain Blue Resort in Miami Beach. We know the scientific content is going to be amazing. It always is with fantastic speakers from across our field. But this year, we are changing the plenary format. We're throwing out the podiums. We're engaging our attendees with TED-style-like talks. We're hosting an array of visionary speakers in every session from some, uh, Sasha Strauss, a branding expert who's given one of the most watched TED Talks in history, and Michael Modic, Dr. Modic of the infamous Modic changes we've all seen on our MRIs. Well, he's going to provide us with insight on what they really mean. We have our new uh, sports and spine session sponsored by the NFL with players and consultants discussing the care of our elite athletes on and off the field. And I'm pumped to announce the launch of the new Todd Albert Scholar Awards, where the top 30 orthopedic resident and fellows We'll get $500 each to present at the meeting. This is similar to, to our Charlie Kuntz Scholars program that we've been supporting for years in neurosurgery uh, for our neurosurgery residents and fellows. We want our orthopedic brethren to join and be a part of this amazing meeting. And this is in addition to our APPs. We have a focused uh, course specifically made for them on Thursday afternoon, and all APPs are being offered free registration for the entirety of the meeting. And most exciting, we have an amazing slate of entertainment beyond the booth crawl and the beer and the wine debates. We're hosting a U2 tribute band named Elevation. They are awesome. They're currently touring in Europe, and they're going to put on a concert for us during the opening reception by the beach. Also, our industry partners are stepping up and taking part in our educational series that will truly elevate our synergy with one another. So take note, abstracts close December 1st in just a couple weeks. So get those abstracts in. The hotel room block will fill up quickly. It's already booking up, so register soon and get your housing early. I'm super excited. March 16th to 19th, 2023. Come join us in Miami Beach. It is going to be a meeting like you've never seen before. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by another of my bosses, my wonderful attendings here at Rush, Dr. Sepersani. Uh, Dr. Sani is a functional neurosurgeon who actually trained here at Rush before his fellowship, and he came back home to open up practice here. Um, in the recent period of his time here at Rush, he has adopted one of the most new and exciting technologies in functional neurosurgery, focused ultrasound. And so I asked him to come on today and talk about his experiences incorporating that into his practice and kind of promoting, popularizing, and building out the practice with the Focus Ultrasound Clinic here in Chicago and, and the community. Dr. Sani, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I guess we were talking a little bit before we started here about who comprises our audience and, and the various different levels and different backgrounds of the people listening to the show. So for some of the younger people, be they juniors in training, medical students, even some college students who listen, maybe could you talk a little bit about what Focus Ultrasound is how it became the increasingly popular tool that it is to functional neurosurgeons. Sure, so technology has been around for about 10 years and it's really a, a new take on an old approach. Um, it is literally a, a non-invasive, if you will, approach to doing 
a thalamotomy or a lesion in a deep location of the brain by forcing a bunch of ultrasound waves to collide in a specified uh, location. Um, this has been around since the 60s and actually has its roots in Illinois, but the catapult to bringing it and popularizing in the last 10 years were, were a couple of things. One was um, the technology got pushed out of the OR and is now really done in an outpatient setting on the MRI table. Mm. And number two, uh, we found a way to deliver the energy without needing to open the skin. So it, these waves are high energy waves and they travel, they, they can travel through air, but we found a way to, to uh, be able to uh, perform a lesion in a very deep location of the brain uh, through the skin, for lack of a more detailed description. Moreover, the technology is now MRI compatible, if you will. So as we're heating up a location, we can do two things which we could never do before. One is we can uh, see the heat map on MR thermometry, which is a glorified MRI sequence that allows you to see a uh, change in temperature um, to a very specific degree in each voxel. So that um, helps us understand that we are in the right location and that we are um, safe. Secondly, these surgeries, if you want to call them surgeries, they're done with the patient wide awake. So as we are performing these, um, what we call sonications or the treatment delivery, the patients give us direct feedback uh, by symptom change as well as side effects. Mm. So um, these advances that weren't there before have allowed us to sort of deliver something that was there. Thalamotomies have been around for many years, but now we can do you know non-invasively. We can have a lot of control during it so that uh, we can actually fine tune lesion uh, size and location before we actually deliver it. Um, and uh, also, I mean, I wouldn't be truthful if I said another reason why this uh, MRI-guided focused ultrasound technology has taken off has to do with, you know, shrewd marketing by the um, very innovative company that delivered it, uh, being able to perform a quote-unquote neurosurgical procedure without an incision has a catchy name, mm -hmm. and it is very attractive to patients who may have been aware of interventional technologies for, say, movement disorders that they've had for years, but they were never willing to go through surgery. And this really provided them with an alternative that wasn't there before, which I think is a, is a large reason for the success. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this technology a handful of times on the show in the past. I think some of the more exotic or, or exciting avenues for further applications are, are things like breaking down the blood-brain barrier for chemotherapy delivery in, in targeted areas or near tumors that haven't broken down the barrier itself. I know Jason Sheehan at UVA has kind of spearheaded some of this research, but I think anyone would agree the, the workhorse and the, the indication for this treatment right now is a central tremor. So thinking about kind of what you were talking about, that marketing, the shrewd marketing and, and the targeting of those patients who have surgical disease but may have been afraid to go under the knife, if you will, maybe you could cast your mind back to when you first considering ado considered adopting this technology in your practice, was that the main driver about getting those patients that were previously afraid or uninterested in treatment 
that now maybe you could find a way that they'd be willing to undergo treatment? Or what, what was going through your mind when you first were pitched adopting this and, and what pushed you to do so? Sure. Actually, that's a very, very uh, poignant topic, especially for young neurosurgeons, because the concepts apply to literally beginning your practice or, or joining a department. And mm. how, do you, how do you structure it and build it for success, if you will? Um, full disclosure, you know, if we're talking about the commercial use of the focus ultrasound, so you alluded to another approach. Um, there are essentially two subtypes of this focus ultrasound delivery, uh, you know, high frequency and low frequency. High frequency is used for making lesions. Mm. So you decide what you want to make a lesion for near, near the center of the brain and, and have at it. Low frequency is more uh, what you were alluding to, is, uh, as, which is the research component of things where we can disrupt blood-brain barrier and you know, uh, attempt therapeutic modalities. As far as the commercial user technology goes, the FDA approval is currently uh, for essential tremor, tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease, and very recently, pallidotomy um, uh, as well for Parkinson's disease. There are a handful of clinical trials that are likely to expand these indications. With that said, I personally wasn't a fan of MRI-guided focus ultrasound when it was first being investigated and the first publications came out uh, because to me, uh, you know, I, I grew up with neuromodulation. Uh, doing an ablation uh, was sort of a, um, a step backwards conceptually in my, in my very less matured uh, under, you know, way of looking at neurosurgery. Right, and we should underscore for the young listeners, again, these are permanent lesions you're creating. So 100%. Things like deep brain stimulation, uh, implanted electrodes for, as you said, modulation, those are reversible interventions. Um, placing the lead, it could be removed, and then once the lead is in place, you can alter the degree of, of current, the degree of modulation you're giving to the patient based on their symptoms, based on their course over time, Whereas this treatment, the MR-guided focus ultrasound, is a permanent lesion being created. That's absolutely right. And I was averse to that because, you know, I'm, I am functional trained and I, uh, you know, think, you know, you can do, like you said, deep brain stimulation, neuromodulation, and if worst case scenario, quote unquote, you can take it out, turn it off, uh, there's reversibility. And, you know, the long-term goal was to drive the field forward with modulating, not ablating. But you know, the, so the key turn, turnaround point was I took that hat off for a moment and I put a different hat on. And I said, look, I, I understand that as a, as a neurosurgeon scientist, but is there a potential for this technology to fill a niche in terms of need for some patients who are out there suffering and uh, they will never consider a technology like deep brain stimulation? Is there a room for this? And I very quickly realized the answer was yes. So I, I surprised myself and I've since then obviously adjusted my opinion on this technology because while you know neuromodulation may have advantages of being reversible and so forth, clear as day, there are a large number of patients who will never touch that and you know, they're averse to it. And this, this is known. And to be able to offer something like that is reasonable and it, and now that we've uh, had the program up and running for about almost three years and we're 200 cases into it, we've seen with our own eyes that uh, this does deliver a life quality changing alternative for these patients. All right, so then now, this is a long-winded answer to your original to a question <laughs> that you raised. So how do I go about doing this? Um, 
I, I literally had to step out of my shell a little bit and think about this from a standpoint of program building. And what we decided to do was look at what it is. And it was a paradigm shift. So, you know, what the unique part of it was that focus ultrasound is has nothing to do with the operating room environment. So that for a neurosurgeon is kind of a, um, a, a strange phenomenon because we tend to think about a workflow that has to do with get a patient ready for surgery, get quote unquote clearances, and then get ready for the OR, you know, spend the night planning the surgery and then recover them. Right. This is different. The team is different. You're in an MRI suite. Uh, there has to be collaboration with radiology in terms of, hey, can we please borrow your MRI? And also it's a different way of talking to the patients. So, you know, they are um, patients who usually have tremors and the expectations are that they don't want something super invasive. So how do you explain truthfully that, look, it doesn't look invasive, but you really are doing a, you're, you're making a small hole in their brain. Uh, but at the same time, yes, uh, it doesn't become an arduous process of them having a similar experience to undergoing a surgical operation. Um, so the, the key factor was putting together a workflow. I had to learn how to make this work in an MR environment and Basically, the first thing on the drawing board was who are the team members involved here? I don't need an OR tech. I don't need a circulator. Mm. Um, and how do we organize this patient pool? Because there are a large number of patients who inquire about something that doesn't have an incision, but a very small minority of them actually are candidates. So first things first, we, from a building block standpoint, we were lucky enough to be allowed uh, in an academic setting to hire a program coordinator that was fully dedicated to this. And this is sort of a unicorn uh, in the sense that um, an institution says, all right, we will give you the financial backing to hire a coordinator. You don't have a program. Your technology has just landed in the building. You don't have a single patient. But I think our program is probably proof of concept that how that, that has paid dividends because the coordinator was a dedicated intake person for any and all these inquiries and was the bouncing voice between the clinicians and the patients back and forth in terms of how do we screen and how do we organize this uh, in a cohesive fashion. Subsequent to that, actually, then I assembled a clinical team of who do I need present for the procedure and that took a little bit of a back and forth. Do we need neurologists there? Do we need neuroradiologists there? Do we need anesthesia there? And those are the nitty gritty things that, that are totally flexible from center to center. Yeah. What has really remained true um, as a proof of concept has been that uh, we have a very robust uh, response and workflow for patient experience. So patients who are interested and they reach out to our center, um, we have carved out a communication line that is direct to our program coordinator. They don't call a call center. Um, they don't have to go through push buttons. Uh, they usually get a call back within the same day, if not 24 hours. And then they go through an intake, which is a series of very basic questions reviewed by us. And if they're coming in for an evaluation, we have managed to assemble a team of interventional movement disorder neurologists, neurosurgeons, and if needed, neuropsychologists and so forth, who, are, who, are, who have arranged to be available on a same day experience. So the patients, um, are coming in and being evaluated in a more efficient way. And you know, then there is a go-no-go decision made after a, a thorough evaluation is made. And subsequently, the coordinators pick up, uh, schedule the patient, and the patient goes through the treatment, and then the follow-ups are all algorithmically set up. So that ease of moving through the experience has, has 
the patients have provided very positive feedback through there. And then the last part of your question was, how do we find these patients? Quite honestly, I, I don't have an answer to that at this point. All I can tell you is, um, there are different approaches to it. We were lucky in a, we're in a demographic that we were first to market in terms of uh, obtaining this commercial te- version of the technology. And so we quickly realized there's a huge need. I mean, we actually were up and running in March, 2020 and treated our first patient literally the next day <laughs> the COVID shutdown uh, was, was in our faces. And we actually had a hard time keeping track of that first patient because we, you know, they closed hospitals. So it was all by telephones and attempting to do telemedicine. Yeah. Um, and, and I really had some um, uh, gut-wrenching days in terms of, is this program doomed? But uh, two months later, when we actually came back and opened up, we noted a very long queue of inquiries of patients who had uh, learned about us having this technology and wanted it. You know, I think uh, in retrospect, you know, I had the advantage of, you know, being part of a DBS program that does, that did and does have an established workflow. And I modified it to a very patient-centric experience in the sense that, you know, whatever uh, inquiry we had from any potential patients has always been addressed and the patient has um, you know, being vetted through a very thorough workflow. And that has allowed us to, re- you know, have a very robust in terms of commercial volume program in a, in yeah. a short period of time. It, it is interesting, as you very saliently pointed out, that shift in the focus and the shift in the overall tenor of the experience outside of that operating room, inpatient, hospital setting to the outpatient um experience-focused mindset where you're thinking about the flow of the patient as they arrive, get their treatment, leave, and all about their experience and less so that high-octane, adrenaline-fueled, inpatient-centered mindset about doing an open surgery. And listening to you talk about this workflow that you set up and the team that you set up at the Focus Ultrasound Center, I, I noticed that there's a lot of attendings involved potentially and having access to a neurologist, having access to an anesthesiologist, obviously you're there and not just in terms of whatever combination of specialist you need present for the treatment, but who the patient has access to, again, to kind of focus on their experience and, and um, how pleasant, how favorable that experience, is, that experience is for the patient. So. I imagine that in establishing an ultrasound-based practice, getting buy-in from your colleagues is critical. As you said, here we had a a very solid movement disorder team set up before you incorporated this to your practice, but I imagine for anyone out there interested in this technology who wants to build out a MR-guided focus ultrasound practice, they're going to have to assemble this team. Even if they already have a, a DBS workflow, they're going to have to assemble a team for this technology and these treatments. So to your knowledge, when you involve your colleagues, you get an anesthesiologist on board, you have a neurologist at the Focus Ultrasound Clinic, not in the OR, not at the the main flagship hospital. What's the billing like? What kind of reimbursements are there for all these various services that that are involved? Is it hard? Is it a hard sell to get them to come help? Or um, is it a procedure that anyone can get good reimbursement for, coding for. It is a FDA-approved treatment, as you said. So how, how difficult was it to get your colleagues 
to leave the hospital and go to this other site to do this treatment with you? That's a good question. You know, I think it's a conversation um, that is had and the tenor of the conversation as is the case with many of these negotiations that us neurosurgeons do with our um, respective colleagues is the key part. Um, part of it is financial, uh, to take um, a movement disorder neurologist out of their clinic uh, to come and, and hang out with you for duration of a case has to be worth their while. Uh, right now, you know, because it's not, it's not for their personal gain, but you know, there are under, they are under some uh, amount of pressure to justify their means, as we all are. Right. To some and, and their experience, I imagine, is the inverse of ours, where we're in clinic, but our our money making time of the day, if you take it from the health system perspective, they a, a CEO wants us in the OR. That's when we're generating revenue, and that's when we're doing what we do best. A movement disorder neurologist, I imagine, their major um, value generation time is in the clinic. That's what they do. Absolutely. So you're taking them away from that. Absolutely. So the, you know the, the conversation is you know like everything else. It's is sitting there with individuals who may or may not be involved in in in, in a program, and figuring out what is a win-win situation. So in in a particular case like focus ultrasound, you know there is no there's, there is it's very difficult for a neurologist to build for anything because they they are performing an examination. If they come for the most part, they can't do the sonications. And um, they can bill for an exam or a visit, if you will, but mm. it's very limited um, and the time duration may not be worth their while. However, um, for example, at our program, um, the, the initial discussions revolve around, look, you know, this may not be as lucrative, if you will, for you to come down into the, as, as it would be if you come down to an operating room, perform electrophysiology and other ways that intervention movement disorder neurologists have in the past operated. However, this is a patient flow that includes individuals who would have never come into our practice because right. they had closed the book on intervention. And we are noting that about 20% of these patients who are coming in for focus ultrasound are actually becoming DBS candidates and going the DBS route. Mm. So we, we said, look, listen, there is a huge advantage of increasing your patient flow, growing your program, and also you know, having this new technology as sort of a, a buckle on the belt of our, what we offer our patients is a huge draw for any patient with movement disorder who comes in. And that has been well received by our movement disorder neurologists. I'll tell you, you know, the first few cases, they were very interested in coming. Uh, obviously, for the most part, these are their patients. That's sort of what we always like to, you know, understand that we borrow them, we give them back <laughs> as being collegial. And they want to come and see that everything is safe, everything is fine. And at our institution, our movement disorder neurology program is big, and they're literally downstairs. So it is, it is not a geographical separation, and they will let us know if there's issues that are, that are not so good, and they're good, both. But after the first few cases, we reached, like, we reached a happy medium whereby they said, okay, we don't have to be present in all your cases, um, and we do understand the added benefit. And so they spend the time in clinic, and if we ever need them to come and check an exam or something, they, they are more than happy to come down. Similar conversations were had with radiology in terms of how they build. So the radiologists um, are able to build for the MRIs that are done immediately after, um, but there is no billing for the procedure itself. Um, and so in that sense also, 
they really didn't. Uh, we spoke with our anesthesiologist. We're one of the unique programs in the sense that we don't have an anesthesiologist present during these focus ultrasound cases. We toyed with the idea, and I know many centers do have one available, um, and our anesthesiologist did not have a vested interest in being there or not being there. They sort of said, hey, if you need us, let us know, but you know, these cases take you know, several hours, and during that time, we could be busy doing other stuff. And we weren't sure, um, but after we got a few cases under our belt and sort of became comfortable with the mantra, and we've sort of written up a, a protocol for our workflow republication in the sense that with proper patient counseling and selection, you can, you, you, you know, it's, it's, and having appropriate APPs and nursing staff around to support the patient, um, it, is, it is safe to do the cases without anesthesia. And that has also been uh, well received by our anesthesia department. So each, each, each one of these silos, um, we have had in individual conversations with, and uh, everyone has reached a mutually agreeable, happy, happy, you know, sort of a agreement. That's great. I, I know um, as, as this conversation comes to an end, I, I know that as you were talking about the establishment of our program and kind of the, the major points along the way that you think were critical, in particular having that program coordinator, can you recall anything in the past couple of years that after the program was up and running, you had your legs under you, you had you know, 40, 50 patients under your belt. Can you think of anything that you changed once you were already underway that looking back, you went, oh, if I knew this when I started out, I would have done X, Y, Z differently. Or was most of the prep just ahead of time and having it organized before you got rolling? Um, I think in retrospect, um, I would have never expected it, but I would have prepared more for the rapid rising volume. I think, you know, I, I dabbled into something that I'm not used to in terms of building a purely commercial program. Sure, we, we, we do plenty of research, there are research cases, quote unquote, and then there are clinical cases that we do with focused ultrasound, but this was a designed, commercially designed program, something I'd never done before. And if I were to go back and do it again, um, it wasn't, a, it, was, <laughs> it was surprising by way of, um, I was so shocked that we had a program coordinator. I didn't ask for any other ancillary staff. And so we, and we very quickly realized that you know, such a volume requires a team of admin, an administrative team for insurance approvals, for following up on all these patients, for their follow-up exams, to see how they're doing, and to maintain the integrity and quality of the experience that we offer these patients. So I would say in retrospect, the one thing I would do different is if, if, there, if someone is planning on starting a program um, and like I has a three, six months and maybe a one year plan, it may not be a bad idea to have a very broad brush idea of where you want to be at two years. Um, because the way administrations work, private or academic, uh, you got to start asking for things and planning how you ask for things very much in advance. And so we found ourselves very quickly being short staffed. Uh, with a large new practice as a component of our already existing very large neuromodulation program. Mm. And so I, I wish I had known that and sort of put in some safety factors in terms of, all right, if you hit a certain marker, whatever that is, ask for another coordinator, ask for another nurse, ask right. for this. And I, you know, I didn't have a good understanding of that until I was well in the middle of it. 
Well, um, that's an incredibly important point, I think, that is uh, applicable to anyone establishing a practice or incorporating a new technology to try to anticipate that boom down the line, even if uh, you don't fully expect it when you're starting out. Um, as we come to a close, Dr. Sani, it, it strikes me that you've had a very interesting career in terms of your training. Um, I recall the first DBS I ever did with you, um, I was already a pathological interviewer and I was asking you how you became interested in these things. And correct me if I'm wrong, you, you told me you went to neurosurgery to treat functional disorders. Um, and so you trained here at Rush with obviously um, excellent cranial surgeons, Dr. Dr. Byrne, um, giving you a, a strong background in functional and tumor neurosurgery, but obviously many luminaries in spine surgery here. So you have incredible uh, general neurosurgical training and spine training, fellowship with Phil Starr in California, and now you've come back and adopting all these new techniques and technologies. Just to, with a little fun, put a pin in this conversation, in the course of your career, what is your favorite procedure? Because you, you talk about the frustration as a surgeon and as a modulatory functional neurosurgeon, the frustration and, and maybe the negative reaction to the idea of lesioning. And it's an incisionless surgery, you're doing a lesion instead of modulating. So if you could just think broad spectrum, the course of your whole career, do you have a favorite procedure today? It still remains, no question, an awake DBS where you see a sudden and dramatic change in a patient's function right in front of your eyes when you stimulate. And you know you have not done any damage to the brain per se. Uh, you can turn it off, you can turn it on, and you know, you have electrically changed this patient's life. You're sort of connected this that patient. That continues to uh, make me pause and gives me that wonder. I mean, I'm, let's see, how many years am I into it? I'm probably 15 years out from fellowship. It still gives me pause. That is pretty darn cool. Um, I know for a fact that, you know, unfortunately, and it's sad to say, we were not able to convert you to see the light, and you are, <laughs> Dr. Colson, a a devout spine surgeon, um, but um, I, I can only hope that, uh, you know, at, at this stage, um, that this continues. The wonder of being able to change the function of the brain, whether you're looking at someone's movements, someone's emotions, um, uh, while they're awake, the, the human laboratory, the brain, this was the driving force for me going to neurosurgery because I realized any other avenue, I would never be able to do this legally in the operating room. That it is still my favorite case. Now, I won't lie to you, a Friday afternoon single level ACDF um, that, you know, alleviates an excruciating amount of pain. It's a close second. And, you know, and sends a patient home thinking you are the greatest gift since sliced bread. Sure, that's satisfying as well. Um, But I always wondered whether I would still find that as satisfying decades down the line or not. And I don't know because I didn't pursue that avenue. Uh, but, you know, I just hope everyone finds something that gets them out of bed 15, 20 years down the line. Yeah, um, your answer spoken as someone who truly loves what he does. Um, and I, I recall in medical school at Miami with uh, Dr. Jonathan Jagged, they, they had a wonderful program in Miami during our neurology block where once a month or once a week or so, they, one of the neurosurgeons in the group would come in and present one of their patients. They had spinal cord injury patients, and they would bring the patients in to talk about their experience. And Dr. Jagged, the functional surgeon at Miami, brought in a DBS patient, and he turned on and off the stimulation um, there in front of all of us, and, and we watched the tremor disappear. 
And that's something that we've all seen happen now, and, and many of our listeners are, of course, familiar with this, but that was the first time I saw it. And as you said, it really does give a sense of wonder and a sense of, you know, the word miracle comes to mind, though obviously we have the technique and the science to explain what's going on, but it has, it has a lot of magic to it. I agree. Well, Dr. Sani, thank you for coming on, sharing your experiences. I, I hope that um, for anyone thinking about establishing a focused ultrasound practice, but anyone getting out of training and, and starting their general practice or trying to adopt any new technique or technology into their practice within neurosurgery, I think can take a lot of salient lessons from the experiences you've shared today. So thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.